You are listening to More Human, the show where we share the stories that encourage leaders to make their businesses and organizations more human. I'm your host, Jeremy Newlick. Imagine. It's 2009. You're in your rental sedan on the way to the Four Seasons in Chicago. Though, you might as well be on the moon, because your mind is racing with excitement. Out of all the candidates possible, you're the keynote of this conference. That stop-and-go traffic from midway to the hotel gives you plenty of time to run through your presentation. By this time, though, you have your ideas down. You know just when to pause, the notes to emphasize. You've spent years cultivating your network and your message. You have been through so many layers of development personally, in academia, in the clinical, corporate settings. You believe you have a profound insight about humans and how it's possible to change workplaces and improve lives. And you can't wait to reach so many people. Finally, it's your chance. You arrive at the hotel, and after the valet takes your car, you make your way across the hotel lobby. Game face on, roller bag in tow, you walk up to the counter. The exchange is pleasant enough. A woman at the counter, of course, asks for a card for expenses. It doesn't work. That's odd, you think. You know you have money in that account. That's weird. Well, we'll just try another one. That one's declined, too. And almost in vain, and with tears already starting in your eyes, you try one more. And suddenly that big world of yours, all that possibility, it comes crashing down on you. You realize that your soon-to-be ex-husband has frozen your accounts. And even though the separation's been hard, you just never thought it would come to this. So there you are, 500 miles from home, standing in the lobby of the Four Seasons, staring out the front doors. You have a big keynote tomorrow, and now you're embarrassed, you're shocked, you're in disbelief. How could you give the keynote with all of this happening? Shouldn't you just go back home, but how could you even go back home with the money frozen? And you start to panic. Well, this was exactly the crossroads faced by Cy Wakeman, our guest on today's podcast. But instead of giving into that panic, something very different happened to her. I had a rental car and I'm thinking, I don't have a place to sleep tonight. And I thought, I'm going to sleep in the rental car. And I thought, well, I need to get ready to go on stage. I don't have a place to shower. And I just thought, you know, I'll wait. There's a spa and this woman was going into the spa. I just kind of, you know, followed her in because I didn't have a key. I got dressed, I got showered and I went and gave the keynote. And, and I realized like this bigger thing had happened to me that even when circumstances sucked it's like this bigger thing happens which is like wait a minute what would great look like if I were great right now what would great look like and it would be like shower and go on stage and impact the world and my ego kept going but you shouldn't have to like everybody would agree that what he did sucked Sai would have been totally justified in taking to the 2009 version of Twitter and putting her ex on blast. 
At the very least, she could have texted friends about how awful her situation is. But she didn't want to give in. And while this story is not meant as an exact prescription for behaviors, it is telling of the kind of beliefs that Sai has about humans. And I just didn't want to go there because I had been to this place of no ego. I didn't want to give up the joy, even when it sucked. Like I had practiced so often getting into high self that my ego kept bringing in this killer line. But Sai, you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to raise these kids on your own. You shouldn't have to. Like, but there was nothing after you shouldn't have to except people like, you're right, but what's your next move? And that's when, you know, I started to personally just feel these questions really live in me. Um, that anytime I started to feel pretty poorly, that self-reflection would just moving to a place that, yeah, I started to just figure out our natural state as human beings when we're in high self is collaborative and innovative and, um, you know, accountable, but that our ego's job is to focus on our external circumstances and keep us in low self so that we can just be irritated by all the stuff that's happening in the world. In terms of a career move, that decision to not give in to that pesky ego voice, it's paid off for Sai. Since 2009, she's certainly come a long way in building a reputation. Sai's ideas have been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, the Huffington Post. She's been a featured speaker and presenter at leadership conferences galore. And she's authored three books, the latest of which, No Ego, How Leaders Can Cut the Cost of Workplace Drama, End Entitlement, Drive Big Results. She even manages to stay on message through this awkward interview with Kathy Lee and Hoda. I mean, there are beach balls, all kinds of ridiculousness. Somehow, Sai stays calm amidst this storm. It's a clip you have to watch in the show notes. I first met Sai a couple of years ago at the Work Human Conference hosted by Globoforce. And as you can imagine from the story you just heard, she was instantly compelling. It's common to hear at conferences like that all of this sort of rah-rah, humans are great talk. But what Sai brings to the table is something very nuanced. She has a deep academic background in cognitive behavioral therapy, but she takes what's normally inaccessible for most people and creates these user-friendly hooks. And these mantras and principles are useful for any human hoping to be more effective in their interactions with other humans. And that kind of sensitivity to making big ideas accessible is even reflected in how she describes what she does. I'm a drama researcher. I study how much time we spend in drama in the workplace. Drama can be emotionally palatable when you're in the midst of it. There's that employee who's always pulling you aside to just vent about her conflict with another person. That time you spend trying to figure out how to respond to a passive-aggressive email. Taking in the aggregate, all of these little interruptions add up to a mountain of hidden costs. It turns out that all the time we spend dealing with gossip, protecting turf, retaliation, Planning defenses, it takes up about three hours per week of time for most leaders. And that averages to 385 
million working days for American firms per year, just dealing with drama. And what's not in those figures are the sick days taken or the actual stress-induced illnesses associated with drama. So in all of her years of working with companies, has Cy found any that don't deal with drama? I have not found a workplace that's free of it. We all have this human condition. We're not uh, quite all as evolved as we want to be, but I have found workplaces that have really small amounts of drama or able to quickly toggle switch out of drama into collaboration, accountability, and all of those no drama behaviors. And, um, the, the results are pretty staggering. In my own company, we benchmark often against other organizations producing what we produce in, you know, income or, um, you know, how prolific they are. We benchmark a lot and we find that we get um, as much done with half of the staff and footprint. So we, we keep our footprint very small and we are able to really accomplish um, that of people staffed at twice our size. So we know that it certainly is a really efficient way to do business and we know it's a great culture in which to do business. A lot of us have just come to accept drama as a cost of doing business if we have people around. Like if there are humans, people think then there will be you know, drama. And people have actually, you know, they think, well, with humans, people need time to vent and, you know, people need time to react and they're going to be upset about change because change is hard. And, and we have found that the average person spends two and a half hours a day, 816 hours a year in drama which not only takes you away from the work to be done, but it keeps you approaching work with a very low consciousness level so that whatever you're doing, whether it's design work or collaboration or, or any of that, just isn't your best work. I was, I was watching a recent uh, keynote that you gave and you talked about how you dealt with uh, your sons. So if, for lack of a better term, the workspace that you created in your home there in Nebraska. And one of the things that you did is you, um, it, I, I mean, I, I would hazard to say it was punishment, but it was more like if you wanted to uh, dole out some consequences, you actually set up a situation in which they had to play poker with you. <laughs> yes. Talk to me about poker and where that came from and like, what's, what is that about? We tend to, we have eight sons between my husband and I. And so we had five in high school at one time. And what we found um, is that we really try and standardize as much work as possible. We try and do design thinking in our own um, work. And what we noticed as kids entered into high school is the odds of them getting grounded um, increased um, dramatically. <laughs> and, um, and we're, into more trouble, yeah, right? they do get into more trouble. Those prefrontal cortex parts of their brain just aren't really developed. And with boys, they tend to especially make some tough choices. And, you know, people say to me, I bet your kids are well behaved because I teach accountability. And I said, no, but they are well consequence. When we think that kids are um, entering the age where they'll soon be grounded, I do something preemptively. I actually teach my kids to play poker. And I do this because when you're grounded, we don't really let you slink off to your room and, you know, 
spend time away from us. We figure if you get grounded, you probably need some more time with us. And I love to play poker. And so I teach my kids to play poker. And then when they're grounded, I um, play poker with the Groundeds on Friday and Saturday nights. So whoever's on consequence um, plays poker with me. And I, I've had to enhance this design. I noticed from their feedback, they weren't really motivated to play poker with me. So I implemented um, that they would play poker and the stakes would be their next week's allowance. So that, that would just motivate them. It's kind of double jeopardy that I it's put. like very literal skin <laughs> in the game. Skin uh, in the game. Approach. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. You're in for the weekend and you're betting next week's allowance. And, you know, interacting with my boys, um, one, it keeps me really young, but it also just gives me so much um, just good observation of human behavior. And so I had taught one of my sons to play poker. We'd done all the practice rounds and he finally gets grounded and it's Friday night and I'm playing with the groundeds and I dealt the um, cards and I said to my son, I said, you know, so Charlie, this is now for real. We're not just practicing. This is your allowance. This is real. The stakes are real. Go ahead and place your bets. And he just stuttered. He like looked at me and he's like, well, what do you mean place my bets? I want to see your cards first. And I'm like, well, Charlie, that's not how poker is played. When I was teaching you, I would show you my cards, but you're out of training. Like that's not how poker is played. You place your bet. You're betting on your cards and your skill, right? And as the stakes get higher, we show more. And he just couldn't bet. He kept saying, but mom, please just show me your cards. I don't want to you know, um, risk my allowance. I want to know that I'll win or that I'll at least, you know, be in the ballpark before I bet. It really dawned on me. One of the things I, in my research found is a source of drama is people withholding buy-in and people not realizing that buy-in is actually a verb. And in all this realm of engagement, Organizations are really teaching their people that it's an organization's job to buy you in. And and I really see people come to work with some conditions. I'll buy in as long as we have the information we need and we have the time we need and we have the staff we need and priorities don't change. And, you know, we're not asked to do things we weren't consulted on. And people are approaching work with these conditions and it's really dumbing down the work because what I want people to know is that buy-in's a verb and they're betting on their skill and, and you know, their connections and their ability to crowdsource and utilize others. And I think too many times some of the drama comes from when we um, start to fall under that spell that we've got to buy people in and bargain and kind of sweeten um, the pot and when I can teach people that the first kind of move in accountability is to really commit and, and here's the deal to commit knowing reality will be in full force. So when I come into work, I add value because I'm pretty sure I'm betting on my skill set that reality will be there. I won't have all the resources I need and there will be surprises and there will be too few of, um, people to help and priorities will change and I'm stepping in and leaning in saying that that's the value I add as a human being is in imperfect circumstances not perfect circumstances
So size assessment, after years of studying our species, says that we were made for imperfect times. Human beings are made for situations where there's a lack of clarity, darkness, uncertainty, and that we have an ability to make sense and clarity out of that darkness. It certainly seems an enlightened way to understand what it means to be human. But if that were the case, if indeed we're meant for times of uncertainty, then why do we cry out for all the right conditions? In other words, why do we fall victim to the spell of wanting to see all of the cards in the poker game? It's not all of us that needs those sure bets. It's our ego part of us. So when we're in low self and our ego is focused on looking good and being right and not being vulnerable, not being exposed, it really is making some demands on um, or putting conditions on when I will give you the gift of my work. And it's one of the ways that drama really comes from people moving. Um, it, it's kind of the... Um, the symptom of or the result of disengagement or people being an ego. And so when people go beyond ego, they're more, they're, they're naturally willing to say, you know, well, let's just uh, throw this out there and see where it goes. If they're in ego, they are more scared to throw something out and then they blame their circumstances. They say, well, I was going to mention it, but my boss um, really doesn't welcome new ideas. And see, the ego has the story that then keeps us safe. And then we can be at the mercy of our circumstances um, instead of just stepping up and the way I explain it is like a lot of people want to wait to be empowered. And I just tell people empowerment stepping into the power you already have. But there's a real difference between kind of ego and confidence. Confidence is like, I know I have a good data point to add to the big crowdsourcing going on here. I want to make sure when your crowdsourcing that I've offered up my data point so that the Google search is complete. And, you know, it's like, I'm confident that I have a, a useful data point. Ego is, I know the answer. I um, know the preferred way. Um, I am right. Um, and if I'm not sure that I'm right, then I am withdrawn and conditional. From the way Sai describes it, it seems like this line between confidence and ego can be a thin one at times. A lot of us, I'm certain, have experienced that kind of feeling. How can I know if I'm creating drama or just working out difficulty? How do I know if I'm acting out of ego versus a higher self, as Sai calls it? When I looked at the sources of drama and trying to look at how we fuel or diffuse drama, I found out that over a third of drama comes from what we call ego behavior. So venting, scorekeeping, judging, gossiping, um, tattling, like just this, this, this disgruntled meant with our circumstances and the focus goes into being kind of a victim and, um, and most people, what they don't realize is when they're being played by the ego. And so um, what happens with the ego is that people start believing everything they think. 
And so when people ask me my best advice, I go, here's where you start. Stop believing everything you think. And I introduce them to their ego. Like if you close your eyes and you just listen in on what's going on up there. The committee. The committee. Yeah. Yeah. In your head, you'll start to realize that you're not the thinker. And it's a big realization for a lot of people. You're being thought. And for the listeners to like, when you wake up tomorrow, just notice that you don't think I'm going to start thinking that when you wake up, you're already being thought. And so that's the first realization. And then the second one is that if you understand how your mind works, your ego is like wearing a pair of prescription glasses that are the wrong prescription. It absolutely corrupts the data you get when you scan your environment. So last night at the airport, I saw a woman letting me know when my next flight options would be. But my ego narrated this means that and turned her into the woman trying to ruin my entire life and career by refusing to get me on an airplane, right? (laughs) So, you know, my ex-husband who wants an extra day with our children my ego turns into a guy trying to take over custody of my kids who I'll never see again. Right. So the ego is this thing that just adds on this story, this, um, and it corrupts our, our data, right? Somebody walks by us and doesn't say hello. And the ego says, Oh, I know what that's about. Ever since she got promoted, she thinks she's that in a bag of chips. I was in a meeting the other day, not to pile on, but I was in a meeting and I, uh, I decided to uh, make an aside uh, with a colleague of mine, you know, during when there was a presentation and I leaned toward him and I kind of whispered something and another colleague of mine was sitting in front of me and uh, he turned around and he said, Hey, why don't you shut your mouth and listen to what's going on up there? Cause maybe you don't know all there is to know. And maybe you should stop being such a jerk and being so, you know, damn disrespectful to the people in our organization and all that kind of stuff. At least that's what I heard. In reality, he turned around and he said, uh, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But I didn't hear that at all. I just heard you're a disrespectful person, you know, all this other stuff. And I just made up an entire story. And and I love your natural ability to just understand like the difference in that, because when somebody turns around and says, if we, um, are in low self and we see that ego story and we believe what our ego is telling us, then we have like this world war three going on in the workplace. And then we're going to focus on him. And when he t- doesn't decide and we're going to, you know, gossip about him and it, it's just, this, I'm going to fault find him like crazy. Yes. Yeah. But what really happened, if you toggle switch into what I call high self that I can explain is you simply go, Oh my gosh, thanks for the reminder. All right, so let's say I've identified, like a lot of people, that there are times I am bedeviled with this ego mindset. How can I break that pattern or disrupt my thinking? Can a person really fight back against their own ego? We often, you know, punch that ego in the face. Like we often like want to fight back. And instead of this distraction method or this bypass, 
um, the mind is unique in that it really has like this toggle switch, this light switch, low self and high self, that is really just a way to move quickly out of ego and into um, a better place. Um, but a lot of people don't know how to use it. It's, it's self-reflection. So if I am in ego, I'm venting, critiquing, judging, seeing people as my enemy, seeing the guy who shushed me as a big, arrogant bigot who talks all the time in meetings. I don't know why he's suddenly judging me on it. Right. But if when that happens and I feel myself connect into something stressful, I can just stop believing everything I think. And for a moment, just inquire personal curiosity. I can say, wait a minute, what do I know for sure? He just gently shushed me. Just that power of self-reflection changes everything. So far, what we've talked about has focused mainly on how a single human can practice size principles. And you may be thinking, well, this is all well and good. But what happens when I go into work? You might be asking what you can hope for if your work culture, organization, doesn't seem to support or value these kinds of ideas. Now, a lot of people who discuss making business more human and even some of the guests on our show have ideas about how to change systems and culture to make business better for human beings. But for Sai, however, as opposed to a top-down design sort of approach, her recommendation for leaders is to establish a groundswell of support for getting out of drama. As a leader, I just try and unhook them from doing things only if this circumstance exists. And I just say, whoa, 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 whoa. What's your desire? Like, if you were great right now, what's your desire? Well, I just want to um, give my ideas freely and let them land where they may and people get credit, you know, where they get credit. Great. Then let's do that. Well, but the system doesn't reward it. I'm like, well, what if you unhooked from only doing things the system rewarded and got back to doing great things? I just work on unhooking people and inviting them to, what if we just do this? And I would also tell you that a lot of people cite culture or systems as this agreed upon excuse that we all buy into. And I've come to like worry about how we use culture because a lot of people, when they bring up the word culture or systems, they hardly ever bring it up by saying our culture really supports that. Our culture is amazing. Our culture really supports open dialogue. They usually say, you know, our culture doesn't support open dialogue. Well, reality falls on a bell-shaped curve. And so if what they're saying is true about culture, they would cite culture as supportive as many times as they would cite it as not supportive. Does that make sense? It makes sense, yeah. And so I'm just saying that I don't worry about culture when I'm leading teams. I advise you to worry about climate. What I can impact is the climate of the, you know, 12 to 15 people around me. And we can establish our own climate and a microclimate. And then when enough people establish climates, then this good kind of global warming happens and the culture changes. But if we're all conditional on the culture, then we won't have the change that we're, we're looking for. And, and it's the, in these moments that leaders 
can question people's thinking with lots of love and support. I think a leader's role isn't to inspire and motivate others. I think it's to help them use better mental processes so they eliminate emotional waste. So drama is emotional waste. And how do you get rid of waste? A better process. How do you get rid of emotional waste? A a better mental process. And so let me give you an example. I really believe that um, people have some amazing things to contribute to our ideas and to putting ideas into action and really making things work. A lot of people believe what they have to contribute and add value with is their opinions. And I believe what people add value with is their expertise. And so just these in the moment when people say, Sai, do you want my opinion on this decision that was made? I'm like, probably not. Now that doesn't mean I don't want to bring humans into work, but opinions are usually anecdotal. They're statements of preference. Preference is the ego's work. Most people giving opinions want their personal preference to trump the potential that if we implemented the idea, and so they use opinions to stop the action. And a lot of people with a lot of opinions, when we tested them, were least ready for what's next. So it seems like they used opinions to stop the action so they wouldn't be exposed as unready for where we're going. So I don't want people's opinion, but I want their expertise. I do get frustrated um, with some things, not usually with individuals anymore, Jeremy, but I do get frustrated with some of the things we're out there um, preaching as gospel from an HR perspective or leadership perspective, um, because I still think it's just really traditional, not modern. I'm really preaching for a modern way. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of folks are really into authenticity, which is awesome. And they're saying things like, bring your whole self to work. And what I would tell people is, please don't bring your whole self to work. Bring your most evolved self to work and your most evolved self, like home. Like, it's our job if we want to be credible witnesses in the decision-making process or design process to really be working to evolve ourselves, to unhook from our ego and get to this place of higher self. If you're someone who's at a leadership role, I'm sure you can hear the challenge implicit in size words. There are a lot of measures we take from a human resources perspective to get buy-in to make concessions, and to make systems optimized for human beings. And it's in that context that Sai's point of view about humans and how they get better at working together becomes compelling. What if instead of working to orchestrate the perfect circumstances for everyone, we challenge one another to show up as our higher self? What if the next time you faced a challenge, you wouldn't shake your fist at the sky at the fates? What if instead, you entreated your team to ask, what would great look like? To learn more about Sai, her ideas, articles, videos, everything, check out our show notes on this episode or go to behumanproject.net. And if you want to see Sai in human form, you can buy tickets to the Work Human Conference. It's in March 
of 2019. Messiah is a keynote, so you know she's going to deliver, even if she has to sleep in her car. Get tickets at workhuman.com. This has been More Human, a production of the Be Human Project. Editing and sound design by Khalees Walker, with art direction by Steph Sabo. It's written and hosted by me, Jeremy Newlick, and we record and produce this thing at our studio at Big Wide Sky, a human business consultancy. To subscribe to More Human, search for More Human anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. And to learn more about the Be Human Project, or if you dig anything you've heard, check out our website, behumanproject.net. And visit often. We love humans.